29 AD, there was one about to change the world. Fully man, fully God, Jesus. Next to him was a friend who witnessed everything. He saw early miracles. He sat at his right hand. His own eyes saw Jesus transfigured. The very heart of Christ was poured out to him, and he was there at the cross on the day history was altered. These are the words and the story of John. All right, you guys. Well, it's a, uh, certainly an honor to be back up here um, with you guys. This is my third time now. And last time, uh, the first two times, I told you a story about my parents. And I told you that was it. So uh, we're doing a different intro tonight. So every three months, something very important happens that probably very few of us pay attention to. You see, every quarter, the official Oxford English Dictionary is updated to include new words and phrases and according to its website, the OED consists of over 600,000 words, 3.7 million quotations, and more than 1,000 years of history on the English language. I won't ask who's a subscriber here. I'm sure there's probably a couple out there. Um, but that's the Oxford English Dictionary. Some recent updates to the OED over the last couple of years include vaccine passport, social distance, essential worker, LOL, awesome sauce. And one of my personal favorites added in March of 2020 was the term man hug. In, ca in case you're curious, a man hug is a noun and is defined as a friendly embrace between two men, often accompanied by a handshake or a clap on the back. I fully expect in future editions, it will also say that it is the official greeting of an organization called Heart of a Man. In September of 2016, a new word was added to the OED that I think most of you will be familiar with. It started as an acronym for a phrase that had became, become incredibly popular in the years prior. But in 2016, the acronym itself became a word. That word is YOLO, which of course is an acronym for you only live once. The OED defines YOLO as a term used to express the view that one should make the most of the present moment without worrying about the future, often as a rationale for impulse or reckless behavior. I'm guessing many of us here tonight have actually used YOLO as a means to justify some of our actions in the past. I see some smiles out there. And the OED definition says that, that based on the OED definition, those were not, not likely the wisest or safest decisions. But hey, YOLO. You only live once, right? So let's make the most of it. Guys, John 7 is a YOLO kind of lesson, but not in the same context in which the phrase is most often used in our culture today. YOLO in our culture has the connotation of doing whatever is best for the individual, doing something risky, but incredibly fun, doing something irresponsible, but not caring about the consequences. YOLO is typically a selfish, short-sighted rallying cry that justifies doing something we know may not be wise, but we do it anyway. In John 7, we see Jesus interact with several groups of people, and the interactions and conversations Jesus had in 7 could just as well be happening here tonight. He could be standing here right now, and the things he would say the questions he would ask, even the analogies he would use would be exactly the same. Because unfortunately, the reactions of the people that we see in John 7 
look exactly like the reactions of the people we see in the world today. The questions and misunderstandings that the people were struggling with about who Jesus is are the questions and misunderstandings that people are struggling with today. And the deceptive hearts of the people in Jesus' time look just like my deceptive heart today. So here's the challenge tonight, guys. Look at this chapter through a YOLO lens. You only live once. The questions are, how are you responding to Jesus? And how does your response impact the only life that you get to live? Would you join me in prayer? Father God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for life. I thank you for breath that we all have here tonight. And Lord, you give us one of those. And Lord, we're, uh, uh, we're met tonight in this scripture with Jesus, and he's presented to us. And Lord, we get, to, we get to respond. And so Lord, I just pray that we would respond in a way that honors you and in a way that, Lord, we just draw closer to you. Lord, I pray uh, for our time here these next few minutes, Lord, just remove me and just let your Holy Spirit speak, Lord. And I pray that maybe these guys can get something out of this that would allow us all to just go out tomorrow and serve you a little bit better. So Father, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be here with us. We love you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the first nine verses of John 7, there's an interaction between Jesus and his brothers that occurs immediately before the Feast of of Booths. This was one of the key festivals that the Jews celebrated each year. And we see Jesus' brothers encouraging him to go up to Jerusalem. They believe this is a great time for Jesus to go and perform miracles so that his popularity can be increased. Jesus responds by telling them to go on without him. He said this was not the right time for him to go because the world responded differently to Jesus than it did to his brothers. Two things I want us to ask ourselves in these first few verses. How do we view our time and how does the world react to me? Time Time is an important part of this scripture and there is a distinction between how time is viewed based on what your purpose is in life. We are told at this time that none of his brothers believed in him. Therefore, we can safely assume that time to them is all about the here and now. What can I do to get the most enjoyment out of this moment? They see this as an opportunity for Jesus to gain in his popularity, his fame, and his power. It's the epitome of a selfish, you only live once mentality. Jesus, on the other hand, is not living for the here and now. He is living for a greater purpose, the singular purpose to which he knows he was called to do. These two distinctly different perspectives on time should challenge and convict us tonight to take a sober look at how we are using the time that God gave us. Jesus' brothers clearly did not understand or know Jesus' real purpose. Therefore, the decisions they made about how they used their time didn't make a difference at all. They could literally do whatever they wanted to do if it was in their own best interest. Jesus, on the other hand, knew his purpose and he intentionally used every moment of his time to fulfill the purpose to which he was called. God has given each one of us a purpose as well. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand for us to do. 
I realize the specifics of that purpose are not always clear. Some of you may be really struggling with that right now. You don't know what God's purpose is for you in life right now. But our overarching theme and our purpose to glorify God and serve him forever, that never changes. So what does the way you use your time say about the purpose for which you live? Are your days filled with things that have meaning beyond yourself? Things that have an eternal purpose? Or are your days filled with things that focus on your own enjoyment and self-gratification? As I was working on this lecture, the thought occurred to me. If Jesus called me Sunday evening and asked me what I was doing this week, what activities I had on my calendar, how many of those things would he actually want to join me on? And my first thought was, well, that depends on the activity. Client meetings? Yeah, maybe. Heart of a man? Definitely. Working out? Probably not. Sitting on the couch next to my wife, Jenny, watching a TV show that she loves? Definitely not. (laughs) But then I thought, I don't think that's the way he looks at it. The activity itself doesn't make it right or wrong, good or bad, or to use a common term, maybe how about sacred or secular? No doubt there are activities that are wrong, but Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord and everything in it. There is no sacred secular divide. What matters is the position of our heart in which we do these things. If my heart is rightly focused on serving the Lord, then everything I do, is spiritual because I can honor him through it. So the real question is, are my activities and the way I'm using my time aligned with what God has called me to do? So let me share some perspective just from my own life this week, guys. Here's some of my activities and the different perspectives I could have, and maybe you can relate some of these to your life. I was in client meetings in Ohio the last two days. So am I going to use those conversations to have conversations about stewardship or am I just gonna talk about money from a worldly perspective? I think if it's a stewardship perspective, I think God joins me in that conversation. If it's a conversation about building bigger barns so we can take more money, then I don't think Jesus wants to necessarily be a part of that. How about being here tonight? If it's about making myself feel good, I think Jesus would pass. But if it's about drawing closer to Jesus and loving and helping other men, I'm confident he'd say, I'll join you. I'll be there with you on that. Working out because I love to look good. I don't see him wanting to take time to do that. Working out because I want to stay healthy and have energy to make the most of every day that God gives me. I think he might even just offer to give me a spot if I needed one, right? How about watching a TV show because I want to be lazy and distract myself from the, and my mind from the things that I know I should do? I think Jesus would have far better stuff to do than sit there and watch that TV show with me. Watching a TV show because it honors Jenny and gives us some time together that she deserves and needs, I think he'd gladly sit on the couch with us and watch that show. Here's the point, guys. We didn't create time. God did. And how we use it, use it should be a reflection of our commitment to him and the realization of what matters. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 says, look carefully then how you walk, 
not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. How wise are you when it comes to using your time? Is your calendar filled with things that are important to you but have little eternal value? What's one thing that you can eliminate from your calendar or daily routine this week that will allow more time to do the will of the Lord? A second important distinction is between how the world treats Jesus versus how it treats its own. In verse seven, Jesus says to his non-believing brothers, he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Second Corinthians 4, 4, Jesus calls Satan the God of this world. And in John 14, 30, Jesus refers to him as the ruler of this world. These verses clearly indicate the tension between the world and Jesus, between good and evil, between darkness and light. They clearly indicate that living for Jesus is counter to the world. And thus, living for Jesus means that we too should be facing opposition. Maybe at times even feeling as though we are hated by the world. Throughout this gospel, John clearly teaches that there are only two sides on which you can stand. You are either on the side of Jesus or you are not. It's black and white. There is no gray area, guys. A majority of our Christian culture today doesn't want you to believe that. They want there to be areas of gray. Man, gray areas tend to be a slippery slope, and we need to be very careful how we handle those. James 4.4 says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in Revelation 3.15, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Brothers, this is a hard truth. We don't like to hear it. But the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. If you are not living in opposition to the world, then we need to ask ourselves, are we truly following Jesus? In other words, we may say that Jesus is Lord, but is he Lord of your life? I'm not saying we should actively seek out being hated by the world. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm certainly not standing here tonight as a man who lives this out with near the regularity that I want to. Guys, I'll be honest. Every time that I read scripture, that as followers of Jesus, we should be hated by the world and persecuted, I get uncomfortable. I squirm in my seat a little bit because if I'm honest, I don't feel that tension nearly to the level that I think I should. I confess, I like comfort. And we have more comfort in this country than any place, than any other time in the history. But the more I look at my comfort, the more I see that it is exactly what keeps me from doing what God has in plan for me in my life. In his book, The Last Arrow, Erwin McManus says this, many of us would choose our comfort rather than our destiny, would choose safety over opportunity, and would rather settle for less than sacrifice more. Where are you choosing the comfort of this world 
rather than the destiny that God has for you. On a scale of one to 10, what level of tension do you feel between your lifestyle and the world? Now, to truly answer that, you need to first define what a 10 would look like. And the best way to answer that is to think, what would Jesus do if he were in your situation tonight? Not the situation of the guy sitting next to you, but what would Jesus do in the situation that is uniquely yours? How would he act in the situations you find yourself in at work? How would he engage in the social media conversations that you have? Whatever that would look like, that's the 10. Now, where are you currently on that scale of one to 10? And then here's the challenge, guys. It's not to be a 10 tomorrow, all right? That's not gonna happen. It's not realistic. You're not gonna go from where you are to being a 10. But what is realistic is moving one number closer to 10 from where you are today. So what activity do you need to stop? Or what activity are you feeling called to start that will move you one number closer to being like Jesus, to living like Jesus in our world today. Let's just move the needle one number, guys, just one number closer to 10. And when we move that needle one number closer, then we'll start to work on getting the next number closer to Jesus. But if there's a tension there, guys, then work on moving that needle closer to what it looks like to being like Jesus. In verse 10, we read that after his brothers have left for the feast, Jesus went up as well. And during the middle of the feast, he goes to the temple and begins teaching. In verses 14 through 24, we read the interaction between Jesus' teaching and the crowd. As Jesus teaches, there are two primary reactions from the crowd, awe and confusion. Verse 15 says that the Jews marveled at how Jesus was able to teach without being studied. In the Jewish culture, it would be customary for the best young male students to learn under a rabbi. Jesus hadn't done that. And so the people were, did not understand how he was able to speak with such authority. Jesus knows that they are thinking this, wondering this. So in verse 16, he answers their questions. He says, my teaching is not mine, but it is he who sent me. Jesus' authority to teach came from the Father who sent him. He was able to teach without worldly learning because he had been with the Father forever. He knew the Old Testament because he watched it. He was a part of it. He had authority over it. When Jesus spoke, the words that poured out of him were the very things that he learned from the Father. He had immersed himself in time with the Father, and it was actually his Father's words that he spoke. What does your speech say about you? What does it say about what you read? What does it say about who you listen to? Who you spend time with? Matthew 12, 34 says this, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does your mouth say is in your heart? Jesus continues to address the questions he knows the crowd is thinking. And in verse 17, he identifies the reason for their confusion. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In essence, he is saying, it's not that you can't understand because you're not smart enough. It's because you don't truly seek God's will. In other words, it's not an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. 
There are things about God that even the smartest people in the world will never understand. It's why he's God and we are not. But to truly understand the gospel, we need to fully seek God's will. And as we seek God's will, more and more truth will be revealed to us. And as we submit our will to God's, we will begin to understand more and more of what we read in the Bible. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we will fully understand everything. This book, this book about, is, this is a book about God. He's the creator of everything. He's eternal. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. How can we ever understand who he is? We can't. But this book isn't written so that you and I can fully understand God. This book is written so that we can know his son, Jesus. That's why this book is written. God's son was sent in this world to save you and to save me. This book is written so that I can know my sin and the despair that I am in, in front of a holy and perfect God. And it's written so that we know that what we remembered this past Friday, Jesus dying on the cross, and then what we celebrated on Sunday, an empty tomb, that that really happened. So the question is, do you wanna know Jesus better or not? If you want a deeper relationship with Jesus, then seek him. Stop pursuing the things of this world and start pursuing him. And don't fool yourself by saying, well, once I get to some, you know, like arbitrary point in my life, like then I'm gonna pursue Jesus. Then I'm gonna do it, right? And I don't know what it is for you, but some of you guys out there may say, well, maybe when I get a job title, then, then I'm gonna fully pursue Jesus. Maybe when I get some number in my bank account, then I'm gonna pursue Jesus. Maybe once you get married, then you're gonna pursue Jesus. I don't know what it is for you, but too often we get consumed by the things of this world and they take us away from pursuing Jesus. Here's the issue, guys. When you get to whatever that place is that we think, well, when I get there, I'll fully commit my life to Jesus, guess what? The goalposts move. The job title doesn't satisfy. The bank account isn't big enough. And your wife hasn't miraculously solved all of your problems. I know. If that's where you are tonight, stop chasing the world and start chasing Jesus. So what is one thing you can do this week to actively seek God's will more fully? In the final verses of chapter seven, we once again come across our friend Nicodemus. If you were here uh, in the first section of uh, when we studied John, you remember Nicodemus well. Now there are mixed opinions on how courageous Nicodemus truly was in this situation. But of all the people we see in this story tonight, I think for me personally, I relate to Nicodemus the most. Again, consider the context. Amongst a crowd of his peers who are all plotting to arrest and murder Jesus, Nicodemus has the courage to at least stand up and say, hey, what we're talking about doing is not right. He may not go so far as to say, I think Jesus really is the Messiah and we all really need to reconsider this. But he does at least stand up and try to slow down the rush to judgment, conviction, and death. Here's why I and maybe some of you out there tonight can relate to Nicodemus. As I read this story about Nicodemus, I sense this tension between his heart and his head. His heart wants to defend Jesus. 
But his head says, the risk is too great. Sadly, I've been there before. In fact, just two weeks ago, traveling back from Florida, Jenny and I stopped at a Dairy Queen. As we waited for our blizzards, I overheard a couple of the workers talking about church and Jesus. This one young kid said, I grew up in church. In fact, I've been baptized, so I'm going to heaven. My heart said, engage in the conversation. Just ask him a question. Just say, hey, that's really cool. I've actually been baptized too. Tell me why you think that means that we're for sure going to heaven. It was simple. The door was wide open. And yet my head said, don't get in the middle of their conversation. You've been on the road for 15 hours. You have two hours left. Take your blizzard and go home. Kid will be okay. Hopefully he really does believe and someday we'll have blizzards in heaven. Don't be a Jesus freak. Just, you know, move on, right? Can anyone relate? I hope so. Because sadly, that isn't the first time something like that has played out in my life. Guys, I love Jesus. I want everyone to be saved. And I know he's the only way to be saved. And yet, I am timid and weak and a coward more often than I care to admit when it comes to telling others about Jesus. Oh, it's safe to stand up here with you guys and talk about it, right? This is safe. But at a Dairy Queen outside Louisville, Kentucky, it sure seemed like a crazy thing to do. Francis Chan said, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that really don't matter. Let me read that again. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that really don't matter. Unfortunately, far too often, my biggest fear is what other people will think of me. Several years ago, Rick Warren was interviewed by, on CNN by Pierce Morgan. Pierce asked Mr. Warren about his opposition to homosexual marriage, to which uh, Warren answered, I fear the disapproval of God more than I fear your disapproval or the disapproval of society. Whose disapproval creates the most fear in you? God's or society's? Here's the reality, guys. Each one of us only lives once, and each one of us will one day stand before the Lord. I'm not saying that we can earn our salvation based on how we use our time, living counter to culture, or that you witness a certain number of times. But given what we celebrated this past weekend, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, there is only one legitimate and appropriate way to respond. We sang a song on Friday night, if you were here, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. There's a line that says, love so amazing, love so, uh, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's the response. It demands our soul, our life, and our all. YOLO, guys, you only live once. How will you live this one life in response to who Jesus is and what he's done for you and for me on the cross. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to save me and to save each one of these guys here tonight from our sins. God, help us. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief sometimes. 
I want to act for you, Lord, but I struggle sometimes. Help me. Help me to do better tomorrow through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to respond by giving you my life, my soul, and my all. And I'm confident that these guys sitting here want to do the same. Help us, Lord, to do that. We love you. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.